Today we mark the beginning of the most significant week in the history of the world. As, as Pastor already said, it's known as Passion Week, and today we celebrate Palm Sunday, the day we remember that, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in, in what has been called his triumphal entry. And what I want to do today is attempt to travel back to that day and, and just walk with him, to walk along his side as he descends down that Mount of Olives and into the city of Jerusalem, um, you know, with the hopes that we, as his church, would come to just a better understanding of what was going on that day and hopefully come to realize why it matters to us today. Uh, the events of Palm Sunday are recorded in all four Gospels. And that alone tells me that this is an extremely significant event. And we're going to look at some details from all four of them, uh, but spend the majority of our time in Luke chapter 19. But before we jump into that passage, I wanted to spend a, a significant amount of time just looking at some of the background, some of the context, uh, you know, try to set the stage for the drama that unfolded on that day. But before we do that, will you pray with me one more time this morning? Jesus, again, we thank you for your presence in this room, and Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I ask you to open our understanding that we might comprehend the scriptures. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to hear what you want us to hear this morning. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this point in Jesus' life, there at Palm Sunday, he had been traveling with his disciples for roughly three and a half years. And during those years, countless lives had been changed, the sick had been healed, miracles had been performed, and many, many people had decided to follow Jesus. But along with the followers and the friends came the detractors and the enemies, those who opposed Jesus and everything he did. And none more vigorously opposed him than the religious elite in Jerusalem, those religious leaders. And it's for that reason that Jesus at one point during his ministry came to, came to the decision to completely avoid Jerusalem altogether for a season. He decided he's going to stay in the north, there in the Galilee, recognizing that those religious leaders wanted him dead. And ultimately, you know, we understand that Jesus ultimately came to die. That was ultimately his purpose. He wasn't interested in a premature death. He had a mission to accomplish while he was here, and he was not going to allow anything get in the way of that mission, of accomplishing that mission. So in, a, in, a, uh, in an attempt to prevent skyrocketing popularity and, and really as a result unwanted attention from those leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus would often, you know, for instance, when he would heal people, he would tell them something very interesting. He would say, do not tell anybody about what has just happened. And we read that and we kind of scratch our heads and say, what is going on here? Don't tell anybody. Rarely did people follow his instruction, and it made it very difficult for him to meet in the cities, in the, open, you know, in the public areas. 
Oftentimes, when, when Jesus was becoming increasingly popular and the crowds were growing, he would simply disappear. He would travel out alone and leave the crowds wondering where he had gone. What happened to him? For instance, in, in John 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 people. And the crowds are so impressed, they're ready to come and forcibly make him their king. And in John 6, we read that Jesus, discerning their intentions, withdrew up a mountain by himself. So he wasn't interested in just being popular. He didn't want the masses following him just to see a miracle or to see somebody healed. You see, Jesus' time to openly declare himself as the Messiah and King of Israel had not yet come. Yes, someday Jesus would reveal himself to be just that, but the timing of that would not be controlled by the masses, but rather by him. He was in control of everything that was going on, and that becomes more and more evident as we will see. Uh, Jesus communicates uh, this, this whole theme one day as he's spending some time with his, his biological brothers. Yeah, he had some brothers, four of them, I believe, and a couple of sisters or more, and he's with family. And they begin to pressure him uh, to make himself known. Let's read the passage. It's in John chapter 7. It says, After this, Jesus moved about in Galilee, but decided not to do so in Judea, since the Jews were planning to take his life. And the Jewish festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, was approaching, and his brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see what you are doing. For nobody works in secret if he wants to be known publicly. If you're going to do things like this, let the world see what you're doing. For not even his brothers had any faith in him. Jesus replied by saying, It is not yet the right time for me, but any time is right for you. You see, it's impossible for you to arouse the world's hatred, but I provoke hatred. It's a strong phrase. I provoke hatred because I show the world how evil its deeds really are. No, you go up to the festival. I shall not go up now, for it is not yet time for me to go. And after these remarks, he remained where he was in Galilee. I'll say it again. Jesus' time had not yet come, but soon it would. His hour was approaching. One more, passage, uh, one more passage I want to look at before we get to the events of Palm Sunday, and, and this is a significant one. The event that we're going to read about in John chapter 11 is, is really the event that gets the ball rolling, so to speak, as, as to what occurs not only on Palm Sunday, but throughout Passion Week. And, and I was blessed as I was preparing, because I had never seen this before in Scripture, just the, just the significance and how this one event is tied specifically to Palm Sunday and again, ultimately, uh, to the whole Passion Week. It's found in John chapter 11. It's a lengthy passage, um, but well worth reading. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples there in the Galilee, and they receive word that one of Jesus' very best friends, Lazarus, is sick. Uh, Lazarus lived down just outside of Jerusalem in a village called Bethany. Um, and so Jesus, hearing he was sick, it's interesting, it says that he didn't leave immediately, but rather stayed where he was until Lazarus died. And then after Lazarus has died, he tells his disciples his intentions to, to head south in order to go see his friend Lazarus. 
And uh, looking at the passage in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, he says, Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I love Thomas here. He gets a bad rap sometimes as being the doubter, right? But here he's full of courage, full of boldness. He says, hey, if he's going to Jerusalem, I'm going with him. And if they're going to kill him, they got to get through me first. He's bold. He says, I'm going with him. And so they head south and and uh, they arrive there in Bethany, and they find Lazarus has been dead for four days. And contrary to the protests by Lazarus' sister Martha, Jesus goes over to where they have placed him in a cave, and he commands them, take the stone away from the opening. And when they followed his instruction, Jesus, with a loud voice, shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. And there he comes, all wrapped up in his grave clothes, alive and and somewhat well at that point. Probably very disappointed to be back. But there he was, living. Going on in the passage, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There are some extremely significant phrases in this passage, that being one of them. This gives us some insight as to why these leaders were so hell-bent on destroying Jesus. They didn't want to lose their position. They didn't want to lose their power. They didn't want to lose their wealth because of this Nazarene, this Galilean, who was going to upset Rome and have them come and take away what little independence they thought they had. Um, So so they say, um, for this man performs many signs, If we let let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come, take away our place and nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God uh, all who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Another significant phrase. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So following this this miracle, this raising of Lazarus from the dead, we have two very distinct groups there in Jerusalem who have radically different agendas and ideas concerning this, this Jesus of Nazareth. 
First, you have the high priests, the Pharisees, the, the religious elite, those, those, those Jewish leaders who for some time have been opposed to Jesus, but who are now galvanized and fully convinced that this Jesus must be put to death. And now they begin to make practical plans for carrying that out. No longer is it just a motive or an intention, but now is the time we must do this. The other group, mostly made up of of pilgrims, those who lived outside of Jerusalem, but had traveled into the city for the festival of Passover. Many of them probably had heard of Jesus, the, the, the miracles he did, but now being there, they have now witnessed a miracle for themselves. They can see Lazarus, who was once dead, now living, and now there, fully convinced that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the promised king that the Old Testament foretold. So they're convinced of it. And they know he's in the area, and they are just waiting for him to make himself known. So with that, let's look now in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29, where where we see in this first part of the passage, the king being revealed. The king being revealed. Starting in verse 29, it says, And it came to pass... When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, called all of it. And he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, whereas you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which nobody has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. So at this point, Passover is just a few days away. Jesus sends a couple of his disciples into a nearby village and gives them the instructions, just as we read, to go find a young donkey, a colt there, and bring it to them. And he tells them not only where they were going to find it, but what to tell the owners when they suspect you of stealing their animal. And so they go, they, they find it just as Jesus said they would. And, you know, some people believe Jesus maybe used his divine omniscience here. He, he saw in the spirit this donkey tied, and he sends his disciples to go and get it. That's possible. I tend to believe, rather, that Jesus had a relationship with these people. That sometime, you know, in those past few years that he had encountered them, got to know them, saw their animals, and said, you know, there's coming a day I might need to borrow your donkey. Is that okay? And they said, of course. And so that day has come. He sends his disciples. They they get permission to take that donkey, and and they, they bring it back. And in verse 35, it says, they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. So the obvious question is, why the donkey? What, what is Jesus' purpose in going to this, this trouble, in a sense, to, to get this animal in order to, to go into the city? Well, the answer is, is clearly spelled out for us in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, we read, All of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The time for carefully concealing his true identity is over. 
Jesus here is announcing in no uncertain terms that he is the king prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. That's, that's the verse Matthew is quoting here. He's saying, the king spoken of Zechariah, I'm it. I am he. Here I am. I love this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, let us observe how public our Lord purposefully made the last act of his life. He came to Jerusalem to die and desired that all Jerusalem should know it. When he taught the deep things of the Spirit, he often spoke to none but his apostles. When he delivered his parables, he often addressed none but a, poor, uh, but a multitude of poor and ignorant Galileans. When he worked his miracles, he was generally at Capernaum and other small villages. But when the time came that he should die, he made a public entry into Jerusalem. He drew the attention of rulers, priests, elders, scribes, and Greeks and Romans to himself. He knew that the most wonderful event that ever happened in the world was about to take place. The eternal Son of God was about to suffer in the stead of sinful men. The great sacrifice for sin about to be offered up, he therefore ordered it so that his death was eminently a public death. That's what this is all about that it would be eminently a public death. So Jesus arranges that this donkey would come to fulfill Bible prophecy, to, to, to make it public without reservation. But also, this communicates what kind of king he came to be here at his first coming. You see, in the ancient world, if, if a ruler, a, a king came into an area that he did not yet rule over, he would ride in on a horse, the, the symbol of strength and power. He'd come in and conquer that region. In contrast, if a king was coming into an area and wanted to communicate peaceful intentions, he would put the horse to the side and grab what? A, a humble donkey that communicated his intentions. You see, Jesus came to bring peace. Not peace between Judea and Rome, but peace between man and his maker. He came not to conquer armies, but rather to conquer sin and death. That's why he came. So in the first passage here, we see the king revealed. The next section, we see the king received. Luke 19, it says, As he went, many spread their clothes on the road. I, I, I love picturing this. See, by, by, by placing their clothes in front of him as he was coming, they were communicating and acknowledging Jesus' right to rule and reign over them. They were in essence saying, you have the right. We are under your feet. We are under your authority. We submit ourselves to you. You rule over us. It says, then as he was, uh, verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples. I want to emphasize the multitude here. And sometimes we, we get a, a Hollywood video in our mind and we picture a few hundred followers or maybe a thousand. Erase that. The crowd that is coming out to meet Jesus wasn't just in the thousands, but the tens of thousands, if not over 100,000 or more. This crowd is unbelievable. You see, Jerusalem during the festivals, and especially at Passover, would be bursting at the seams. The people who would travel there from all over the region, it's estimated that well over a million, if not two million people would have been in Jerusalem at this time. 
So the crowd coming out, just picture a, a sea of people coming out, filling that, that valley there between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. They're coming out. This, this crowd is so massive, in fact. In John 12, we read that the religious leaders say, look, we are accomplishing nothing. The whole world has gone out to him. There's a bit of hyperbole there, but, but the fact of the matter was this crowd was unbelievable. The whole world has gone out after him. Again, in verse 37, it goes on. This, this multitude of disciples, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John adds these details in his gospel, chapter 12. says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees. There's where we get Palm Sunday. They're coming out, they're grabbing any palm frond they can get their hand on, and they're heading out to where they believe Jesus is coming. And they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, literally save us. That's what the word means. Save us now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now understand, this is not a spontaneous shout of praise, but rather a deliberate recitation of Psalm 118. They're quoting scripture here. Psalm 118 specifically being a a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. It's called a messianic psalm. Uh, concerning those palm branches, many, you know, you know, various explanations have been given as to, you know, why, you know, what's the significance with them. I believe the best explanation is that the palm tree during that time, you know, really traveling back to the time of the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans who, who came in and overthrew the, the Greek rulers at the time, the, the palm tree had become a symbol of national identity and independence. That's significant. Some coins which have been found, you know, archaeological digs have been found to be minted with, with images of palm trees on them. This was, this was their banner. This was their flag, their national identity, all right? Again, remember the timing. Passover is a few days away, really the biggest event of the year. Passover, the time that Jews, even to this day, this Friday, Jewish people around the globe are gathering together to remember, just as God commanded in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, gather together and remember how I took you out of Egypt, how the, how the angel came and passed over your house when he saw the blood that was wiped upon the doorframe of your house. So they're remembering coming out of their bondage from Egypt into freedom, into independence. So Passover, in a sense, became their Independence Day. This is July 4th for them. This is huge. One problem, at this time, they weren't independent. Rome was ruling over them. Caesar was king. His word was law. They were not free. They were living under the heavy oppression of Rome. And so here, again, you got to picture it. They know Jesus is coming. They're fully convinced that he's the Messiah. He's the rightful king. So with this nationalistic 
fervor and great expectations as to what the days coming would bring. The multitude goes out to meet their champion, waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, save us. They believe he's about to come and take the throne, overthrow the Romans, set up the eternal messianic age. See, in their minds, they're not about to see this happen. In their minds, this is happening at that very moment, and they're a part of it. And they're going crazy, celebrating, rejoicing at their king. But the events were not going to unfold as they had hoped. They had high expectations. Those expectations are about to come crashing down. For rather than being embraced by the nation and specifically the leadership there in Jerusalem, the king is rejected. Verse 39 of Luke 19, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, they understood the significance of what they were saying. And they saw it as blasphemy. They can't be saying those things to you. So they say, rebuke your disciples. But he answered them and said, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I believe Jesus is implying a couple of things here. First, He is saying the purposes of God are going to come to pass even if he has to employ stones in order to accomplish them, in order to bring them to pass. Secondly, I believe there is a rebuke here referring to the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts which have caused them to completely miss what is going on here. He's saying in effect, To these Pharisees, these rocks along this road, were they able, they would sing out my praises. But you, because of the hardness of your heart, have failed to see the word of God being fulfilled right in front of your very eyes. Their hearts were hardened. They were set in their ways. They would not see. They were unwilling to see. Oh, may it never be said of us that our hard hearts prevent us from giving Jesus the praise and the adoration that he deserves each and every day of our lives. He is worthy to be praised. <clears throat> it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this year day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a severe and shocking pronouncement. It seems so out of place at this time. Up until this point, this day has been full of celebration and joyful anticipation. But in the midst of that, of of what's going on, the jubilation, Jesus begins to weep. And it's significant, I believe, the word that's used here. Twice in scripture we read that Jesus wept. The first was at Lazarus' grave. He cries, I believe, seeing the, the effect of sin upon mankind and the hurt that it brought to Lazarus' family and friends. But the, the word that's used there implies a quiet weeping. Almost says you, you just bow your head, tears are maybe you know, falling, but it's not an audible crying. The word used here 
is a different word. And what is implied here is a loud, sobbing, almost a convulsing cry. An obvious, almost like a child who's worked up and can't catch their breath, sobbing over, over something that has happened. That is Jesus here. And boy, I have to try to put myself in the disciples' shoes. You look at your teacher, your, your, your master, and he's crying. And you say, what is going on? This is the greatest day of our lives. The crowds are declaring you to be the Messiah and King. What's happening? See, Jesus knew that these crowds which were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would in just a few days be replaced by a crowd which shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. He knew he would be rejected. And as he comes over the crest of the Mount of Olives there, he gets a view of Jerusalem and he begins to sob. He begins to weep knowing that in 40 years the city was going to be destroyed and annihilated, and he weeps over the, over the carnage and the massacre which is going to happen in the future. But more than that, I believe Jesus is stirred to the point of sobbing because he's recognizing the multitudes whose eternal destinies are at stake, so many who would go off to an eternity without, without him because they failed to recognize why he came and who he came to be. So he weeps. Well, later that week, on the very day of Passover and that night, as thousands of Passover lambs were being sacrificed, their blood is being spilt there on Passover, the Jewish leaders, directed and led by Judas Iscariot, went and arrested Jesus as he, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, there on the Mount of Olives. And Having arrested him, they put him on trial, declared him guilty of blasphemy, and eventually handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at that time. Pilate, being really completely ignorant of the enormity of the moment, begins to question Jesus. And I wanted to read just a couple verses here in John 18. Pilate is speaking, he, and he asks Jesus, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born. I love that. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world. He completes his sentence there that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate then asks that, that infamous question, what is truth? Not realizing truth was standing right in front of him. Eventually, Pilate began to see that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death, and so he, fought, he sought to find a way to release him. Now, at one point, he asks, what do you, you know, he asks the crowd, the leaders, what do you want me to do with this man? I found nothing worthy of death. Do you want me to, to crucify your king? 
That's what they've been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate can't wrap his mind around that. Why? They finally convince him. And, and in response to Pilate's question in John 19, the chief priest answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. What a statement. What a statement. We have no king but Caesar. When you refuse to recognize Jesus as king, you'll be deceived into all kinds of beliefs which are not biblical and end up serving your enemy, ultimately. It's dangerous. At this, Pilate finally gave in. He delivered Jesus to be crucified. They led him to a place called Golgotha, literally place of the skull. And there on Passover, Jesus, the Lamb of God, took our sin and our punishment upon himself. He paid the price for our salvation and declared it with his, with his last breath. It is finished. The price is paid in full for all mankind. And with that, the scriptures say Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was finished, but he was just getting started. He was not finished. See, death was not the final answer for him, and it's not the final answer for us. See, by his death, he conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. As you know, three days later, Jesus would walk out of the tomb where they laid him and take up his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Our king, although he died, did not stay dead. He's been resurrected and he is alive today. And this is, of course, what we celebrate at Easter. That's why we are going to gather next week and rejoice in our living Savior and all that he has accomplished on our behalf. That's the next villain. Our king is resurrected. There's just a couple of passages remaining. Thanks for sticking with me. On the day of Jesus' resurrection, there's two of his disciples, two followers, two who, who were a part of that massive crowd who had high expectations for all that they believed Jesus was about to do. And they here on that day that Jesus was, was raised from the dead were heading out of Jerusalem toward a, t uh, toward a town called Emmaus. And as they're walking on the road, all of a sudden, who to them was a stranger, began walking alongside of them, none other than Jesus himself. And they begin talking about all the events, all that has gone on over the last few days. And Jesus kind of plays ignorant. And they say, what, are you the only person in Jerusalem who, who, is, who didn't realize what's happened? And, and they're talking to him, and he begins to, to talk about the scriptures in the Old Testament of how the Messiah would come and how he had to die. And I was going to read just a, a couple of, of, of passages from there. In Luke 24, it says, uh, you hear they're, they're speaking to Jesus about Jesus. They say, we were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today's the third day since these things happened. Notice he said they were hoping. At that point, all hope was gone. Their expectations had been crushed. Jesus was not the one they had believed that he was going to be. He had not done at all what they thought he was going to do. And their expectations, their hope was crushed. And I ask you this morning, have your expectations been met by Jesus? Maybe you came to Jesus thinking life was going to be 
just amazing one day after another, no trials, nothing going wrong, only to come to find out that's not how it is. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So Jesus is trying to correct their thinking here, and, uh, and he's trying to show them from the word of God. And let me just say, boy, the only hope for us, the only hope for the world is found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And next week, Pastor is going to be bringing a message all about hope. This world needs hope. Your friends, your family's members need hope. That hope can be found right here as they meet with Jesus. So make sure you bring people with you next week as Pastor brings a message uh, on hope. It says, as he, it came to pass as he sat with the table with them. So, so they talk him into coming into the house where they were instead of continuing to travel. And it says, as he took bread, he blessed it and broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were open. Maybe they saw the scars on his wrist, his hands. And then it says they knew him. And at that moment, he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and sprinted back to Jerusalem, I imagine. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. I want to invite the musicians to come back if they would. You know, I, you may or may not have noticed I haven't given you very many practical points this morning. I haven't given you too many do this and don't do that and, you know, you'll be a better Christian for it this morning. But my prayer, my hope, is that somehow this morning, your heart, just like these two followers that day, that your heart has begun to burn as you heard the words from the word of God. I hope a, a, a fire has been lit inside of you this week which will, will, will cause you, which will compel you to take this book and sit at Jesus' feet and let him open up the significance of the scriptures to you that you may see exactly who he really is. Let him speak to, the, speak to you this week. Be intentional to spend time with him, to contemplate the events which occurred 2,000 years ago for you. You're in the story. He died for you and for me. Well, there's one more fill in there in your notes. The last point is the king returns. See, Jesus came the first time to suffer and die. He was a king, but just as, just as scriptures foretold, the king would first come and offer himself as a living sacrifice for sins. That's why he came. He came to die. But on the authority of God's word, I can say to you without question, without doubt, he's coming again. And he's not coming as a suffering servant this time. The next time he comes, he will not be riding a donkey, but rather a white horse. He won't be a suffering servant, but he will be a conquering king. He'll descend the Mount of Olives, go into Jerusalem, sit on the throne, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. There will be no end to his kingdom. He's coming again. 
It'll be a triumphal entry like the world has never seen. It's going to happen. My last question to you this morning is, is he your king? He is the king. He is the king of kings. But is he your king? You see, Scripture very, uh, very clearly declares that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, when will you allow that knee to bow? Will you bow to him? Say, Lord, rule and reign over my life here and now and for all eternity? Or will you, God forbid, wait until the day when you've died or he's returned and you will bow down and say, I was wrong, I confess and he will say those, those words which will be terrifying to hear, depart from me for all eternity. It's heavy, I know, but it's the word of God. Don't leave here today without being absolutely certain as to who your king is. He came to be your king. He didn't come to just rule the masses and the whole world. He wants to be your king individually. He wants to be a part of every area of your life. You know, I didn't wasn't planning on saying this, but what's significant following his triumphal entry is he goes into the temple there in Jerusalem not to sit on the throne, but to drive out the money changers and those who were, were ripping God's people off. He went in and he purified the temple. Today, God's temple is within us. He wants to purify us. He wants us to set us apart. He wants to come back for a bride that is pure, waiting for him, looking, as Pastor said last week, who are anticipating his coming, saying, Maranatha, come, Jesus, I want you to come. I'm not dreading that day. I'm looking forward to it. Come. That's who he's coming for. The prayer team is going to be up front here as the worship team closes us in a song. But again, don't leave today without just reaffirming your commitment to Jesus, the King. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, which is living and active, God. God, we submit ourselves, we surrender ourselves to your rule and reign. Do in us whatever you see fit. If you can use a donkey, God, you can use me. You can use anybody, God. And we surrender to you this morning. Be glorified in us and through us. Draw us close to you this week. Burn within our hearts. Open our eyes, Jesus, in a way that we may know you in a way like we never have before. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.